betrayal is shocking. Yet betrayal is sadly common. Marriage vows, oaths of office, Hippocratic oaths, and other oaths are not enough to prevent betrayal. We take oaths, we enter into covenants, we make vows precisely because we are prone to betray. Some even betray Jesus. How do we respond to betrayal, especially when we've been betrayed? How do we respond when we are hurt by the words of someone we love? We've, we've heard from our youth, we, we've been told, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We've been told that message from our youth, but we all know that it isn't true. We, we have been hurt, and we have hurt others. What do we do when we've been betrayed and hurt? Where do we turn? Psalm 55, the psalm that we have the privilege of studying together this morning, is, it teaches us that we turn to our God, that we cast these very heavy burdens on Him, and we plead with Him in mercy to sustain us. If you, if you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, open your Bibles to Psalm 55. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning, I believe, on the, the bottom of page 475. And, and while you're turning there, let me just kind of set the context for our study. Psalm 55 comes after Psalm 54, which was a psalm about when David uh, was betrayed by the Ziphites. Uh, you see, while David was on the run from Saul in 1 Samuel 23, he took refuge among his own people, the tribe of Judah in the town of Ziph. David shared a, a kinship with the Ziphites, they were of the same tribe, of the same family line, and yet they, his own family, betrayed him. They told Saul that David was hiding among them, and Psalm 55 follows that. It recounts another time of betrayal in David's life, a little, a little later. So a couple of psalms of betrayal stacked up next to each other. In all likelihood, this psalm, Psalm 55, recounts the betrayal of David's close counselor, Ahithophel, from 2 Samuel chapter 15. David's son Absalom had initiated a coup against his father in Jerusalem, and he completed the coup by stealing David's longtime counselor from him. David was forced to flee Jerusalem, and no one else could be his refuge but God. So in this psalm, in Psalm 55, David, he casts his burdens upon the Lord. Every word in God's word has a distinct role to play in the unfolding history of redemption. And Psalm 55 contributes to that history by presenting us with a prayer from God's king, King David. God's king has been betrayed by his close friend and he cries out to the only one who can deliver him. He cries out to God. Is there another king in history, in the history of redemption, who comes to your mind, a king who was betrayed by a close friend, maybe one from his inner circle. I hope that you're thinking of Jesus. He was the king who was betrayed and delivered by one of his own disciples. Brothers and sisters, if, if you want insight 
into the experience and the prayer life of the Lord Jesus Christ while He was on earth, I think that you need look no further than the Psalms. As we hear these words coming off the lips of David, we need to hear them on the lips of Jesus too. For it was Jesus who said in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And brothers and sisters, we need to know this about our Savior. He is one who can sympathize with us. You have likely cried out in anguish to God, begging Him to act. You've likely called out to Him for deliverance. You've likely confessed that you felt betrayed. And so has Jesus. He understands that feeling. And with this in mind, please listen. Please follow along as I read Psalm 55 now. Psalm 55. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskal of David, give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy. Because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. Selah. I would hurry to find a shelter. From the raging wind and the tempest. Destroy, O Lord. Divide their tongues. For I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls. And iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud. Do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It's, it's not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We, we used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house we walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God... And the Lord Yahweh will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaints and moan, and He hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old, Selah, because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was as smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord Yahweh, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. But I 
will trust in you. As we read Psalm 55, you, you probably noticed uh, that it begins generally describing conflict that David experienced. We see this in verses 1 to 8. It's kind of in general terms, this conflict that he's undergoing. And it's actually deep in the psalm when we get the specifics that David has in mind. Why this conflict is so excruciating. He's been betrayed by a close confidant, a companion. We see that in verses 9 to 15. And it's only when we get toward the end of the psalm, verses 16 to 23, that David's confidence in God's deliverance grows. While this psalm seems to lack maybe a a detailed structure, that's the overall arc. We begin with a, a, a general complaint. It grows in specificity into a confident, a confidant. And then David grows in confidence toward God. And those, those three themes are what are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. We'll look at conflict, confidant, and confidence. Let's, let's take a, a closer look at the first eight verses of the psalm where David describes the conflict he's experienced in, in kind of general terms. And as we do, let's just go ahead and read those verses again. Take a look at Psalm 55, verses 1 to 8. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I'm restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away and I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and the tempest. This psalm begins with a complaint over conflict, but but don't pass over the ascription too quickly. The ascription tells us something striking. This complaint over conflict with a confidant leading to confidence in God was meant to be sung. The people of Israel were meant to sing their complaints. That seems strange to us today. Do we think about gathering at church and think about, why don't I sing a lament to God? We tend to think about, no, we want to sing about happy things. But no, David is teaching the people of Israel how to honestly complain to the Lord. This psalm, a heart-wrenching prayer and poem, was meant to be sung. It's meant to teach the people of God how to cry out honestly And in a holy way, not to sin against God in doing so and expressing their lament. David was giving the people of God, giving us a kind gift, words that they can use, that we can use to worship God even under immense stress and strain. And this tells us something about God, doesn't it? He's real. He he really cares. He really hears. And he really answers the prayers of his people. Why would David cry out for God to give ear to his prayer if it were not so? Like David, we really can cry out to God to give ear to our prayers, to hear and to help us. Is this this how you pray? Do you pray like Psalm 55? Do you pray like you need God's help? Or like it would be nice to have God's help 
Is there a sense of desperation to your prayers? Is there a plea for mercy in your prayers? Do your prayers reflect your need for God to show His compassion to you? Verses uh, 2 and 3, they begin to show us what this conflict has done to David. It has made him restless. It's made him moan and groan with uncertainty. If the anxieties of his own heart were not enough, we're told that the noise of David's enemies is loud. The opposition and oppression, they're overwhelming. As Absalom was cultivating, David's son as Absalom was cultivating this conspiracy against his father, David's heart began to melt as he heard reports of the hearts of Israel going away from him, and to Absalom, David began to quake. And from 2 Samuel 15, we learn that, that Absalom, he was actually a grievance peddler. He would rise early, he'd stand outside the city gates, and his people were, were coming in, bringing their complaints before the king for judgment. Absalom would say, you know, your claims, they are, they're good, they're right. He did this even without hearing the other side of the case. And he would say, oh, if I were judge in the land, I would, I would certainly give you justice. I, I would give you the right answer to your dispute. That's how he made people angry with David. That's how he cultivated hearts bearing grudges against the king. That's how he made people cry out in their hearts, if only Absalom were king, then we would have justice. Absalom, he convinced his hearers that he could give justice. Just as a word of caution, beware of earthly authorities who tell you they can give you justice. If you just elect me, if you just appoint me, I'll give you justice. Now, to be clear, you, you can find them on both sides. Right? You'd find both sides of the political spectrum. Beware of exchanging masters, especially when the master you are not getting is not God. Beware of earthly rulers who make themselves the center of your hope. There's only one hope. We hope and pray for God to execute His justice through men temporally. So those whom God sets in authority over us, we want to pray that God would work through them to carry out principles of justice and mercy. We want to pray for men to be just and righteous. We want to encourage that and cultivate that. We want to, for those of us who, who work in political spheres, who work in areas of justice, we want to execute justice as closely as we can in accordance with God's Word. But we need to know that in this life, in this fallen world, all the justice and the here and now will sadly be imperfect. Desiring justice is a good and right thing. And when used to supplant true and proper authority, it is an unjust idol. So at the end of the day, our ultimate and only hope, we trust God to give His people justice ultimately and finally. On the last day, our God will put all wrongs right. We work for justice in the here and now, but we pray and trust our God with the ultimate outcome. The shaking of David's kingdom and the safety of his own life caused him anxiety and terror. And as David's kingdom shook, so did his heart. The tremors of the kingdom led to a trembling heart in the king. 
The overthrow of his throne led to an overwhelmed heart. Can you connect with, with David's feelings on these things? Have you ever felt anxious or afraid? Have you ever been terrified? Have you ever trembled? And this is the mighty King David, right? The one who was delivered from the mouth or paw of a lion, the mouth and paw of a bear. This is the one who was delivered from the sword of a giant and the sword of a king. David, he seems like one who's seen it all and one who has seen God protect him through it all. Perhaps it is because David has seen it all that he is so afraid. David is one who knows just how terrible the terrors of death can be. If he could, he would escape, he says. He would fly away. He would wander away. Have you ever wanted to just escape? If he could, he would go back to his days of hiding in the wilderness when he fled from King Saul. We see that in verses 6 and 7. This is often our, our reaction, our first reaction when we're afraid, isn't it? When trials come our way, we want to escape. We want to find some way out. We're tempted to run away. We're tempted to stay in bed. We're tempted to skip that meeting or avoid that conversation or that person. We want to, as David says in verse 8, hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. It appears a way of escape was also on the mind of Jesus when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Didn't Jesus ask God the Father if there was a way to escape the cup? And wasn't, wasn't Jesus' heart in anguish? The terrors of death had fallen upon him. Fear and trembling were coming upon him. The horror of bearing God the Father's wrath for the sins of mankind on the cross overwhelmed him to the point of perspiring blood. He wanted to escape. But more than that, he wanted the will of God to be done. This is what we need to know about God's Word and God's Son. It speaks truthfully to our experience of suffering and sorrow in this world. God's word here in Psalm 55, it, it exposes us. Our God says to us, I know how you feel. I know the conflict you face without and within. And even more beautiful, beautiful truth is this. Our Savior has known the anguish. He's known our anguish. Just when Satan tempts you to despair, just when he tempts you to think that nobody knows the trouble I've seen. The scriptures and Louis Armstrong channeling the scriptures answer back with this, nobody knows but Jesus. Christian, you need to know this about Christ. Every sorrow and every weary woe that you have ever known, Jesus is known too. In Jesus, we have an all-sufficient and sympathetic Savior. And that is just one of the many remarkable things that sets Christianity apart from all other world religions. I mean, take Islam, for example. Allah is not a God who has experienced the trials and temptations of humans. He's not a God who can understand what we think or feel or do. Like every other world religion, Islam does not have a God who can sympathize with the sufferings of His people. But in Christianity, we have a God who knows and understands. In the Bible, we meet a wonderful, merciful Savior 
who has walked where he is calling us to walk. David would hurry to find a shelter from the raging storm. But he wouldn't run away, and neither would Jesus. And as we see here in verse 9, David turns to God in prayer. He moves from complaint over conflict to prayer over his confidant, to his companion. And here's where the psalm turns even more deeply personal for David. And here, to be honest, the psalm begins to get a little uncomfortable for us. Let's turn now and consider our second point, confidant. Please follow along as I read verses 9 to 15 again. Look at verse 9. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst, oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house we walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. Now the gravitational center of these verses is the pain that David feels from being betrayed by a close confidant or companion, as he calls him there in verse 13. This gravitational center is really in verses 12 to 14. And it's important to note that these verses are bracketed actually by prayer requests that God judge his enemies. We're going to need to think carefully about applying that to our lives. But first we need to step back and remember the context of David's complaint over his confidant. You, you may recall uh, from earlier, 2 Samuel chapter 15 uh, recounts David's son Absalom. He initiates this coup against his father in Jerusalem. And David is then forced to flee the city of Jerusalem. He's forced to leave his throne. And in the second half of verse 9, you see it there? For I see violence and strife in the city. It's almost certainly a backward glance that David takes as he looks at Jerusalem. And it's apparent from verses 12 to 14 that this betrayal is something that David could bear if it were coming from any other person. You expect your enemies and adversaries to work for your downfall. You kind of expect that. You expect them to taunt you and to ridicule you. You expect your enemies to be insolent and disrespectful toward you, but you don't expect it from your son. And your closest companion. You don't expect them to betray you and abandon you. You can even see how David held Ahithophel in such high regard by the language he chooses to describe him there in verse 13. My equal. Here's the king saying this. My equal. My companion. My familiar friend. It is the worst when friends become enemies. David not only describes Ahithophel in intimate terms, but he also believes that how they used to spend their uh, time together reveals their close friendship, right? They, they discuss the best course of action together for the country. They, they worship God together. They, they walked in the throng. You'd have to be close and be trusted by the king's bodyguards and by the king himself 
Not anyone can just walk with the king. This should all seem very familiar to us with respect to the life and the ministry of King Jesus and his betrayal by Judas. Right, together they worshipped Yahweh. They, they walked around Galilee together. They, they walked among the throngs. Judas was close. He was trusted. He was the treasurer, the money keeper for Jesus and the disciples. Jesus was a, a familiar friend. So familiar that Jesus would allow him to walk right up to him and give him a kiss. The Apostle Peter was on to something when he called David a prophet. In Acts chapter 2, verse 30, David was not only a prophet by what he wrote, but even in the events that he experienced. There's a key difference between the betrayals of David and Jesus. David was betrayed and he survived. Jesus was betrayed and he died. The terrors of death fell upon David, verse 4, but death itself actually fell upon Jesus. This is where things get interesting because when you think about it, Judas' betrayal of Jesus was necessary for our salvation. It was part of God's plan for Jesus to be betrayed. It had to take place. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. Jesus had to suffer this grievous wound of a familiar friend, not just so that he could sympathize with us in our betrayals that we experience in this life, but so that he could bear the punishment of our betrayal of God, our sin. You realize that this is why Jesus went to the cross, right? Jesus went to the cross because we have all betrayed God by sinning against him. Like Adam, who once walked with God in the garden in perfect harmony and peace, and yet who turned his back on God by forming an alliance with Satan, rejected God's good counsel and God's commands. Adam betrayed God by attempting to set up his own kingdom and rule, just as Absalom was attempting to do. In a similar way, we have all rejected God. We've all decided to live our own way, to set up our own kingdoms, to rule our own lives. This is why the eternal Son of God took on flesh, this is why Jesus came from heaven to earth. He came to lovingly pursue and redeem betrayers like you and me. The only way he could redeem us from our betrayal of God was to be betrayed and to be delivered up to death. Jesus took our sins and our betrayals and the punishment due to them upon himself on the cross. There he died for all of those who would betray their sins, who would turn their back on their sins and look to Him in repentance and faith. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. He calls us to end our betrayal of God and instead to betray our sin, to turn against our sin by confessing and repenting of it and seeking God for mercy in Jesus Christ. Jesus' proof that we can indeed be forgiven of our betrayal of God is seen in His resurrection from the dead. You see, three days after His death on the cross, God the Father raised Him from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that we may once again dwell with God, that we may be His companion and be His familiar friend and one day walk with Him in the new heavens and the new earth if we would only repent and believe that Jesus lived and died and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins. And friend, if you're here this morning, and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to exchange your allegiances. 
Instead of going on in betraying God, turn from your sin, betray your sin, and come to place your faith in Jesus Christ. As, as was mentioned earlier, these verses about David's betrayal by a close and familiar friend, verses 12 to 14, are bracketed by requests for God to judge his enemies in verses 9 to, to 11, and there in verse 15. And we need to think carefully about these requests. Now look at verse 9. What's the point of verse 9? Destroy, O Lord. Divide their tongues. This looks back on a, a prayer that David made after he learned that Absalom stole the hearts of his longtime confidant and counselor, Ahithophel. Right In 2 Samuel 15, as David makes his way, actually up the Mount of Olives, the same mountain that Jesus would make his way, up on the night of his betrayal, he learns that Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And immediately David prays this in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 31. David prays, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. What David is praying here in Psalm 55 and what he prayed in 2 Samuel 15, 31 is, is basically what took place when God judged the world at the Tower of Babel. Remember the, the peoples of the earth, they took their stand against God at the Tower of Babel with the hopes of making their name great, greater than the name of the Lord. And as an act of judgment, God did what? He divided their tongues. That's David's request here. He divided their tongues. He confused them and made their speech utterly foolish to one another. Yes, David is praying for God to judge his enemies. And he is right to do so, for not only do they act unjustly by stealing the, the throne of the king, but they also perpetuate injustice and violence upon the inhabitants of the city. Remember, Absalom, he was promising to give them justice, but what did he actually bring? He brought fraud and oppression and injustice. He lied. When Absalom finally gets his power, he abuses it. Notice this in David's prayer. He's calling for God to judge his enemies because of their injustice. David points out that their strife and their violence. You see that in verse 9. He points out the iniquity and trouble. Verse 10. He points out oppression and fraud. Verse 11. And part of the purpose of David praying for God's Babel-like judgment on his enemies in the city is so that the inhabitants of the city will be rescued out from under that injustice. Is that not loving? For God to pray, to pray for God to rescue and relieve the oppressed from their oppressors? Now, this kind of prayer, the, the prayer of verses 9 through 11, is commonly known as an imprecatory prayer. They occur uh, relatively frequently in the Psalms. An imprecatory prayer is where the people of God call for God to judge His enemies. This is a good and righteous prayer from the lips of David. He wants God's justice to be done. And he wants God's people to be delivered from the injustice that they are suffering. And this, this kind of question, uh, it, it immediately springs, springs in our minds, is, is, is something like this. Can we as New Testament Christians pray a prayer like this today? When... When we as Christians are mocked and scorned in our workplaces or even in the public square, square, what does it look like to pray Psalm 55 verses 9 to 11? It means that we pray that our friends, our co-workers, our family members, and 
neighbors would have their sins judged and punished in Jesus Christ. We can even pray, verses 9 to 11, more generally over the injustices that we see in our world, in our city. We can pray that those who perpetuate injustice would have their tongues divided so that they may not carry out their schemes. And think of how loving that prayer is, especially for the victims of such oppression. Shouldn't we pray for relief for the innocent? Lord, confuse their schemes. Cause them to crumble. Isn't that perfectly in line with David's prayer? With his concern for those in the city suffering under the injustice of Absalom and Ahithophel, this is a loving prayer from David for those who he ruled over. This is also consistent with verse 15 where David says, Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. In verse 15, David doesn't pull his punches, does he? He's praying for something that has happened in Scripture to happen again. Just as he prayed for Babel-like punishment in verses 9 to 11, so David prays for a numbers-like judgment upon Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. This is important to know your Old Testament so that when you're praying, you can pray for Old Testament-like things sometimes to happen. That's good and godly. In number 16, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, they betrayed Moses, the leader of God's people. They had treated him derisively, and the Lord judged Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in Numbers chapter 16, verses 31 to 40. By what? Does anybody know what happened? By causing the earth to what? To open up and swallow them. David is praying and asking God not to delay his judgment upon the wicked. He's asking God to bring about his judgment swiftly and immediately. Can we pray such a prayer? Can we pray for the immediate death of our adversaries? We can and should pray that their sins would be judged immediately in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can pray that they would die to sin and live to righteousness. Perhaps you're saying to yourself, come on now, come on. David is praying for their immediate physical death. Can we pray for that? Well, uh, you're right. That is what David is asking for. And still we live in light of the cross. We can't take that out of our view. Right? So in light, so praying this prayer in light of Jesus Christ means praying, praying for the sins of the wicked to be put to death in the cross of Christ. We leave their physical death in the hands of God, which is what David is doing. And this is important to observe. At no point does David take matters of justice and judgment into his own hands. Instead, he repeatedly entrusts himself to God who judges justly. He, he brings his petitions to the Lord. He makes those petitions on the basis of God's righteousness and justice. And at the end of the day, he entrusts the outcome to God. In other words, his orientation, his confidence is finally resting in God and in his goodness and righteousness. Not surprisingly, this is where the psalm ends. With David expressing his confidence in God. With David looking to God in faith. And this is where our hearts need to be anchored as we faced betrayal, difficulty, and suffering in this life. So let's turn now and consider our third and final point. Confidence. And as we do, follow along. Let's read verses 16 to 23 again. But I call to God. 
and the Lord Yahweh will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaints and moan, and He hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. For many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was as smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. But I will trust in you. Verses 16 to 23 hold three uh, identifiable sections. Their first, verses uh, 16 to 19 return to the opening call and complaint found in verses 1 to 2. Second, verses 20 and 21 return to the betrayal of the psalmist's true companion found in verses 12 to 14. And third, verses 22 and 23 are an outward call from the psalmist to ancient worshipers of God to cast their burdens upon the Lord. And ultimately what David is doing is he is rehearsing his betrayal once more for the sole purpose of asking the ancient people of God to imitate him in his confidence in God. David's saying, follow my example and place your trust in God. This is what the psalmist wants from us as we reflect upon the prospect or possibility or, or, or even the reality of betrayal. He wants us to cast our cares, to cast these heavy burdens on the Lord. So let's take a closer look at these verses now. As I said there, verses 16 to 19 return to the opening call and complaint found in verses 1 and 2. And notice that he uses the same pairing of complaint and moan in both sections. There's, however, something different in this section. It's this, it's confidence. Here he confesses that he calls upon the Lord and that it is his confidence the Lord will save him. This is a contrast between his end and the end of the wicked in verse 15. There's a contrast between David's end, salvation, and the wicked, judgment. And this confidence builds as David declares that he calls out to God morning, noon, and night, which is just another way of David saying that he's calling out continually to the Lord. And the Lord hears his prayers. And hearing, we must remember in the Old Testament, is not simply kind of receiving or transmitting information. Hearing assumes action based upon a covenant relationship. Remember, God formed a covenant with David. And God will be faithful to His covenant with David and all of His previous covenants, including the covenant which He said He will bless those who bless His people and curse those who curse His people. This confidence in God's saving action for the sake of His covenant servant is, is outlined further there in verse 18. David's confidence of salvation is cast in the terms of redemption. It's not merely a physical salvation, but a spiritual salvation. You see, the Lord redeems David's soul in safety from the battle. This language of battle shows us what's really going on, too. David's enemies were first and foremost God's enemies. They were engaged in battle. 
In attacking David, making war on David, they were really attacking and making war on God. What about our battles? What do the scriptures tell us about our battles? Do we battle against flesh and blood? We battle against spiritual forces. And they are God's enemies. And there are enemies. Why is David so confident of his salvation and redemption? You see, God will give ear, David says. Why? Because he's enthroned from of old. God's in control. He's sovereign. He's carrying out his purposes. And God will not allow pretenders to steal David's throne. The Lord's anointed, Psalm 2, will sit on the throne. They won't be victorious in the end. They do not fear God. God has promised that a faithful one, not an unfaithful one, will sit on his throne. And David is therefore certain of the reversal of his fortunes. He is confident concerning his future because he's confident in God and his plans and his purposes and his power. And it's here we need to pause and ask ourselves, what about us? We need to call out to God in prayer continually during our trials. But, but does this mean that when we call out to God in prayer, does this mean that He will save us from our trials? Put that question in the back of your mind. When we call out to God, will He save us from our trials? Keep that in the back of your mind. We're going to come, come back to it as we face uh, verse 22. But before verse 22 come verses 20 and 21. These verses return to the betrayal of the psalmist's true companion found in verses 12 to 14. They remind us yet again that this attack upon David was personal. Ahithophel violated his covenant. As a close counselor and confidant to the king, he had undoubtedly swore loyalty to the king. But when he joined Absalom's conspiracy, Ahithophel violated his covenant loyalty. Verse 21 especially shows us his two-faced hypocritical nature. He was saying one thing with his mouth, but another thing in his heart. It matters what we say. It matters what we say. And the motives of our hearts matter too. As Christians, we of all must be people, must be truthful people in speech and in heart. Those two should align. Our hearts and our speech should be in line. We should be those for whom there is no gap between our mouths and our motives. It is probably better not to speak than to speak contrary to your heart. And if what is in your heart is sin, you should not speak. James' words remain timeless. Every person should be quick to hear and slow to speak. James 1.19 There's one final pivot that takes place in verses 22 and 23 of this psalm. The orientation of the psalm, in many respects, pivots from me, myself, and I, to you and your. In other words, we move from I call to God, and the Lord will save me, to you call to the Lord, and He will sustain you. And what the psalmist is doing, what David is doing, is he's using his experience to exhort the people of God to trust in Yahweh. He's calling the people of God to follow in His footsteps of faith, while at the same time assuring us of the providential care of God. As we think about verse 22, let's circle back to that question we raised just a minute ago. Does, psalm, does this psalm teach that if we call out to God, He will save us from our trials? 
Well, is, is that the promise of verse 22? If we cast our burdens, our cares on the Lord, will He remove them from our lives? Will God remove those burdens and trials? Maybe. But that's not the promise of verse 22, is it? Verse 22 does not say that God will separate us from trial. It says that He will sustain us in the trial. God may not separate us from trials, but He will sustain us in trials. Think about that. The promise of verse 22 is that our God will never leave us or forsake us. The promise of verse 22 is that He will carry us, that He will strengthen us. W.S. Plummer, a wonderful uh, commentator on the Psalms, said this, as long as we have a God to go to, what more do we need? As long as we have a God to go to, what more do we need? Rivers of sorrow may roll over us and mountains of care may rest on us, but if we cast all on God, He will sustain us. Aren't we tempted to bear burdens on our own? But David tells us, he teaches us, cast your cares upon the Lord. We are so often so foolish to try and bear these burdens on our own, but our God says to us, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Here in verse 22 we have the biblical assessment of God's assignment and ours. Our assignment, you see it there, is to cast our cares upon the Lord. And His assignment is to sustain us. He will be faithful to His. We have that promise of Scripture. And we ought to be faithful to ours. He will be faithful to sustain us. And we ought to be faithful to cast our cares upon Him. David, he came to the Lord pleading for mercy. Verse 1. And now we see that the mercy of God, that the mercy God will give is His sustainment of the righteous in their trials. God will not let the righteous finally fall. Even if a trial overtakes us through death, we will not be lost to everlasting defeat, but delivered to everlasting joy. Let me say that again. Even if trial overtakes us through death, even if we die because of a trial, we will not be lost to everlasting defeat, but delivered to everlasting joy. On the last day, our God will right all wrongs and judge all His and our enemies. Our part, as one scholar said, is to echo, but I will trust in you. Your mission from Psalm, 20, uh, Psalm 55, verse 22, verse 23 is to echo in your life and heart, I will trust in you. This scholar said, our part is to echo, but I will trust in you, saying not that we trust God to do what we want Him to do, in this case to relieve our distress, but that we trust Him. For His part, He assures us, not that He will take the burden from us and carry it for us, but that He will sustain us. There is a personal relationship there which in the end triumphs over every adversity. If we are being called to
to cast our burdens upon the Lord, that must mean that our God is able to bear us up under them. When we cast our cares upon the Lord, when we cast ourselves upon the Lord, then we are walking the path that Jesus walked in His betrayal. We must be wary of pride. We are not greater than our Master. And so we ought to expect to face the trials that He faced. When we are betrayed and burdened, we must humble ourselves, as the Apostle Peter said. Remember, he said in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, we read this earlier, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. We must humble ourselves, because our burdens are under the sovereign providence of God. And if they're under His sovereign providence, sent by His sovereign hand, then His sovereign provision can sustain us in them. More than that, in His sovereign timing, He will raise us up from every burden or betrayal that casts us down. Imitate David. Commit yourself to trusting the Lord and casting your burdens upon Him. Imitate Jesus and entrust yourself to your faithful Creator. Let's pray together.